When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mom and Dad are Fighting is sponsored by The Terrible Two, the hilarious new children's book series that's filled with pranks, hijinks, and cows. From New York Times best-selling authors, longtime friends, and certified pranksters, Mac Barnett and Jory John. That's The Terrible Two from Amulet Books. And by Little Passports, the award-winning subscription that inspires your child to learn about the world. Featuring a new country each month, packages arrive filled with souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. Save 40% on your first month today with promo code FIGHT40. Learn more at littlepassports.com fighting and use the promo code FIGHT40. And by Bloom, helping new families find the products they need from pregnancy to preschool. Discover a personalized box of new goodies for your child delivered to your doorstep every month. Just visit bloom.com slash momdad and use the promo code momdad. That's B-L-U-U-M slash momdad and the promo code momdad. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 12th, the Is My Kid a Narcissist edition. I'm Dan Coyce, I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Harper, who is seven, and Lyra, who is nine. I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate, and I'm the mother of Harry, who is six, Sam, four, and Wally, two. Hi, Allison. Hey. So on today's show, is your kid a narcissist or what? We will talk to a developmental psychologist in the Netherlands who's been studying how children become self-absorbed. Plus, George Hodgman left New York to care for his 92-year-old mother in Paris, Missouri. We'll talk to him about elder care and his lovely memoir, Bettyville. Plus, triumphs and fails, a listener question about how to deal with daycare that isn't following the rules and recommendations. But first, if you are a fan of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, a dad head as I call our most loyal fans. I'm still working on that. That might not be the best possible name. Please tell a friend. Share the show by email. Share it on Facebook. We really love our listeners, and we want even more of them. So please, please spread the word. And if you're a fan of Slate, please consider joining our membership program, Slate Plus. You'll get bonus podcast segments and exclusive podcasts. Plus, members get our bonus triumphs and fails with Slate editors and writers. This week, it will be uh, editor Jessica Winter, who is back today 
from maternity leave. And this week, if you're a Slate Plus member, you can listen to the very first Outward Live show with June Thomas, Brian Lauder, Mark Stern, and special guest Leah Delaria from Orange is the New Black. Slate Plus is free to try for two weeks. Go to slate.com slash fighting plus to sign up. All right, let's go to Triumphs and Fails. Allison, what do you have? Okay, here's the latest entry in the Benedict Book of Fails. Uh, <laughs> my sister actually asked me, does Dan ever fail? I feel like you always fail and Dan always triumphs. It's just because I'm so honest. Yeah, no, no we got an email from someone who felt that was very gendered, and I think it sort of is. I definitely like to focus on my triumphs a lot more than my fails. I don't notice mine. Okay, as I mentioned a few episodes back, John and I are moving but what I failed to say is that we're actually moving from the city to the suburbs. Oh, really? That's so interesting. I have I have written in here, pause for Dan to gloat. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I think it's a great decision. Great decision. Good job. Longtime listeners of this podcast know that I passionately defended raising a family in the city in our epic city versus suburbs episode way back when. But... I'm a broken woman and off to New Jersey. We will soon go. You can write me to tell me what you think of that. I'm sorry, everyone who's still raising their kids in the city that feels like I've let you down. I view this as a huge fail, the fail of a lifetime, but it's actually not my fail this week. My fail is that instead of preparing how we'd like to tell our kids about this and waiting until closer to the actual move date, which I think will be this summer, so it's still months out, so not to unnecessarily provoke an extended period of anxiety for our children, particularly Harry, who's an anxious kid and does not want to leave Brooklyn ever. He's made perfectly clear. Uh, John and I just sort of openly talked about the house hunt in front of our kids, and Harry figured it out because he's six and he can hear us, (laughs) and he flipped. And I'm not surprised that he flipped or that, and I think he would probably flip when if we point. had sat him down in June yeah. instead of now, but I'm bummed that, you know, I'm bummed the way it went down, that we didn't do it in a more careful way and that we didn't keep it from him for longer. I feel like this is too long now for him to have to think about it. Um, hopefully he won't, and we're going to try our best to sort of dial it back and not talk about it so much so that it's not always in his face, although we are going to be dragging them, I think, to open houses. But, uh, yeah, that's my fail. I would like to push back hard on this one. I don't think that's a fail. I think that you are making this family decision and he is part of your family and including him in that decision and making it clear to him from the get-go what your plans are is the right thing to do. And he would take it bad no matter when you did it. And this gives him more time to get used to the idea and to start to get excited about the things about it that are legitimately exciting. Like seeing those houses is going to be great for him and interesting for him. I don't think this is a fail. I think you're being mean to yourself. The thing is, is that, I mean, I like the idea, kind of, you know, what Ron Lieber was saying last week, or maybe, I don't know if he was saying this or if this one is, was in his one of his pieces that he wrote related to his book about being really honest about money. And this is another thing, like this is a big family thing. There's no reason to like shield them from it. However, he's not really involved in the decision, right? Like if he doesn't want to go to New Jersey or if he wants a different bedroom in that different house than the one we eventually pick, it really doesn't matter. Like I'm not taking that into account. So I don't know. Yeah, but wouldn't you rather lie to him that he's involved in the decision than lie to him about moving at all? We took we actually then went on Sunday to look at houses and I we went for ice cream and I let him get of course like this massive chocolate covered <laughs> waffle cone and then I like you know made some comment about like wow, I've never seen a cone like that in Brooklyn and he stopped in mid eating and looked at me and said, "Stop trying to convince me." 
Oh my god. He's, yeah. Maybe he's too smart for, for for you guys. But we'll get to that in the narcissism section. All right. Of this uh, okay. So I have a triumph that turned into a fail. I played the George Washington game with my kids uh, uh, the other night. Wait. If recap you, in case anyone. Didn't yeah. Listen. Yeah. So if you so anyone who listened to last episode, you'll remember that I mentioned this game that I read about in a Sunday Styles piece about this radio host at WNYC, and she and her husband play this game with their kids sometimes, where one of them pretends to be George Washington, transported from the past into the present day, and the kid's job is to like walk them around the house and explain modern life to their visitor from the 1700s. And this sounded really fun to me. It seemed like something that would be really cool to do and we played it and it was really really fun like the kids loved it i really loved it it was like not one of those games that's only fun for children and boring for adults it was interesting for me too to see um how they led me around they really loved explaining like about grocery stores and dog food and the difference between mario and luigi um they were very assertive in telling me that it was not cool that i owned slaves uh but <laughs> It turns Wait, out, <laughs> okay. well, I asked them who does stuff around the house. And Lyra, who has studied George Washington, was like, we don't have slaves like you do. That was not good that you had slaves. You shouldn't have done that. Um, but here is the problem with the game. It turns out that this game is a really great way to f- learn all the things that your children do not know. And my fail, a big fail, I think, is that my kids know basically nothing about how anything works. Like, I asked where electricity actually came from before it came to our house, and Harper was like, it comes from the sky. And then I asked Lyra where the water goes after you flush the toilet, and she said, I don't know, a swamp or something. I don't pay attention to any of that. And they, so they don't actually understand the internet or our furnace or cable TV. I mean, do I, you? Yes, I understand <laughs> these things, but I was a colonial gentleman, so I couldn't explain them to them. And I'm with I, your kids think this is a big fail because i don't want to have kids who don't know anything about how the world works or how things get into our house or it's how worked out fine for works. me <laughs> has it allison <laughs> has it really you think ice cream is bigger in new jersey than in brooklyn <laughs> anyways i think this is a big fail i don't like having kids who don't know like about recycling and where why recycling is better than garbage or that power plants make your electricity like that drives me crazy so i'm going to work on explaining this stuff to them but this in what like a lecture game, series you're going to have like a, a nightly I, i'll pose i'll pose as ted um, talks Nikolai Tesla dan. and tell them how electricity <laughs> works yes it'll be dan talks dan talks with dan <laughs> but yes that i felt like that was a fail though please recall that it's cloaked in the triumph of having a wonderful time with my children i think this is actually a book idea for you <laughs> like, <laughs> explaining the world to your kids yep and to Allison Benedict, that'll be the title. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's take a break for a word from our first sponsor today, The Terrible Two, the hilarious prank-filled new children's book series from Amulet Books that promises to turn the world upside down. It is perfect for early chapter book readers, fans of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, kids who might be a little bit reluctant to read chapter books because it is filled with great illustrations as well as hilarious pranks that you, a child, can play on your hapless parents. Uh, it is written by New York Times bestselling authors, longtime friends, and certified pranksters Mac Barnett and Jory John. It has great blurbs by Dave, from Dave Eggers, from Jeff Kinney, the author of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, who calls it a double helping of fun and mischief. And, of course, everyone's favorite Captain Underpants author, Dav Pilkey. It is actually a really great book. Listeners to the show know that Lyra read it and loved it. I read it and loved it. It is super charming and super funny and a great lesson about moving to a new place and finding your people in that new place. Plus, it has 
facts about cows. Once again, it is called The Terrible Two. It is by Mac Barnett and Jory John. It is published by Amulet Books. Check it out. All right, let's move on to our first segment. Over to you, Allison. Every parent thinks his or her children are special, better in some essential way than all those other kids in town. But how special we truly think our kids are and how much we tell them that might just be turning them into raging narcissists. That's the conclusion, at least, of a new study published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences by a team of researchers led by Eddie Brummelman of the University of Amsterdam. Eddie's on the line from Amsterdam to tell us more and hopefully prevent us all from raising monsters. Hey, Eddie. Hi. Thanks. So before we get into the particulars of the study, first tell us, what's so bad about narcissism? Uh, Narcissists, they feel they are better than others and they feel more entitled than others. They also want to be admired by others. So when they are not able to get the admiration they want, they sometimes uh, lash out aggressively. So narcissism might actually lead to aggression, uh, provoked aggression. So tell us about your study. So what we did is uh, we uh, recruited a large group of uh, families in the Netherlands of children who are between the ages of 7 and 11. And um, we followed them for one and a half years. So, And we measured them every six months. Uh, in children, we measured narcissism and self-esteem. And in parents, we measured how much they overvalued their children. So to what extent they felt their child is more special and more entitled than others. And we measured how warm and affectionate parents are. And what we found was very interesting. Uh, what predicted narcissism was how much parents overvalued their children. So the extent to which they feel their child is more special than others. But self-esteem is actually fostered by uh, parental affection. So how much warmth and affection parents show to their kids. So this goes against uh, one line of thinking that is that what actually produces narcissism is parents not being good to their kids. Parents being, you know, undervaluing their kids, essentially. Yeah, there were two ideas. Uh, like one idea said that um, uh, narcissism is created by parents who are really cold and that children put themselves on a pedestal to obtain from others the approval they didn't get from their parents. But the other idea stated that narcissism was actually fostered by overvaluation. So children might internalize the belief that they are more special than others. And we found support for the latter theory, so not for the first one. So we didn't find any evidence that parents who are cold uh, have children who are more narcissistic. So some kids are actually especially good at certain things. How can parents know when they're overvaluing a skill or correctly valuing a skill? And if a kid is really like really a faster runner than everyone else in his school, is it okay to tell him that? Overvaluation is not about, it's not very domain specific. So it's not about specific skills, but it's seeing your child as more special as a person than others. But we also wanted to know in previous studies, do we truly overvalue? And what we did is we assessed parental overvaluation using a questionnaire in parents. And we also asked them, how smart do you think your child is? And then we measured students' actual IQ scores. <laughs> Suckers. <laughs> it predicted how, how smart parents think their child is, but not how smart he or she actually is. And most people think their kids are smarter than they are? Yeah. yeah. Do you know, is there any difference between a parent who really secretly believes that their kid is better than all the other kids, but doesn't, but tries not to convey that to their children. Because I feel like a lot of parents are sort of in that situation, right? Like the actual heart of parenting is kind of believing in your heart that your kid is the best kid. But is there a way to shield them from that? Is it simply a matter of like not making that explicit all the time? Or do kids get it whether you say it or not? Yeah, that's a good question. So what we studied was parents' belief. So to what extent they believe the child to be very special. 
But the question is, do they express it and how do they express it? And that's an important question. So perhaps overvaluation does not foster narcissism when parents are aware of their beliefs and don't act on it. Do narcissistic parents pass along narcissism to their kids or are narcissistic parents so self-involved that they wouldn't think to regard anyone but themselves as special, even their kids? It's possible that they pass it along. Um, we know that narcissism is partly genetic inheritable. It's also rooted in these very basic temperamental traits. And we also know that parents who are narcissistic themselves also overvalue their children more. So when they see their own children as princes and princesses, and so they see themselves as kings and queens. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I feel like the message of self-esteem in America is often delivered via telling kids that they are special. Um, as opposed to just passing along the obvious message that they are loved. I mean, often those go hand in hand, and people often tell their kids both. Do you think that that's universal? Is that something that you see in the in Europe as well in parenting, or does that seem like a uniquely American parenting trait, this desire to tell kids not just that they are loved, but that they are special and exceptional? Um, we definitely see it in the Western world. I think what you mentioned is very important. So uh, with all the best intentions, parents overvalue their children often with the aim of raising their levels of self-esteem, but in reality, they might inadvertently be also raising levels of narcissism. So what is a very positive intention, namely raising children's level of self-esteem, might translate into parenting practices that backfire. I feel like my parents used to say everyone's special in their own way. Is, is that okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think um, yeah, that's, that's a tricky question, of course, but what I think what is central to overvaluation is to believe uh, your child is better than others and more entitled than others. So it's about your own child at the cost of others. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Eddie, for this great advice um, and really interesting study. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, Allison, so what do you think? Are your kids budding narcissists? Do you pass along the message that they're special all the time? I think I try not to, but I guess I'm a little confused where the line is between telling kids when they're really good at something and then just like this sort of general notion of like specialness. Um, because I think I make an effort. We actually do. We actually recently have been talking about this, about things we're bad at and things we're good at. And my right. kid, like I'm really bad at cooking and I'm terrible at crafts, but I consider myself a great dancer and I have a nice voice. And like Harry thinks he's really bad at chess. I don't know if he is or not, but like, OK, maybe he is and that's fine. But he's actually really great at these other things. That seems, from what Eddie's saying, slightly different from just sort of this general idea that you are better than everyone. I don't know. Do most parents say things like that? <laughs> I think that most parents, not most parents, I think many parents definitely pass along a message to their kids that they are special and exceptional. And even more than that, I think that our culture really presents to kids an image that their parents are the ones who are always fighting tooth and nail to get them the best of everything. Right. And that is where I feel like it really comes in. Like, And that is where I struggle. Like, I try and pass along the message to Lyra and Harper that other people love their kids just as much as we love them. And they don't deserve special privileges over other children in school or in other places. That they are part of a group and that the power of the group is greater than the power of any one individual. But we also, you know... We have shown them a life in which we, for example, left the city for the suburbs, in part because we wanted the best possible schools for them. And we certainly live in a way so that they see that we have many nice things and and that we 
put aside our the things in our life often for them and that we but you, you don't know, tell them they deserve those things right that they but we but I mean, what other message can they get when we deliver those things that's right. what worries me about the way we raise our kids is that we can tell them as much as we want that they're just the same as any other kid but our desire to make their lives as happy as possible leads us, I think, to be constantly doing for them. And, of course, you want to do for your kids. I want to do for my kids. But I also worry sometimes that when they constantly, like, you know, I'm trying to do work and they come up to me and I, you know, close my laptop and deal with them or, you know, put off the phone call and deal with them or whatever, I worry about giving them the message that no matter what, whatever an adult is doing – Whatever they need come like takes priority over that. Well, and that so. seems like a slightly different thing. Although that could be a manifestation of of an already ingrained narcissism. Giving them your attention when they demand it, I don't think is the same as like telling them they are the best. Well, it's certainly telling them that they're important than me than whatever I'm doing. Like, right. don't, do you ever get that sense that in your family that you have these like three sort of like little tyrants who actually control the schedule? And, do I ever not get house? that sense is the question. <laughs> yes, of course. And they don't get it at all. I mean, there are so many, there have been numerous occasions when I've like, you know, essentially broken down and tried to explain to them like, don't you think mommy needs, you know, and they don't. And yeah. I don't know if that's about you know, age, they're little too. Lack I mean, your of kids empathy. are little. Yeah. But I'm wait I've been waiting for that to kick in, you know, with Harry, like an understanding of other people's needs and maybe that is narcissism. Uh, I don't know. As in many areas of my life, I've been thinking about this a lot and this is maybe a grander conversation we should have in some other podcast. But this is a situation where I feel like I have this ethos, right? That my kids are the same as everyone else's kids and that they are not more important than anyone else in the world. They are just people in the world. But everything but you if, do goes against that. Right. Is it an yeah. ethos if I fail to live up to it every single day? Right. I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe at some point it stops actually being my philosophy. I mean, I've written about this a little bit in relation to the school situation, which is like, yes, everybody wants the best for their kids, but you know, who else wants the best for their kids? Like all of the people who can't afford the best for their kids. And right. we should give up that idea. And our kids don't need the best, especially our kids. Like, you know, especially kids with parents who can be home at night and aren't working three jobs and can give them things. But yeah, it's a struggle. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, we want to hear from you. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com and tell us about practical ways that you remind your kids that other people are just as important as them. Or if you are intentionally raising a narcissist as a lifestyle choice, tell us that too, because we would like to know about it. We have to come up with like a catchy name for that. If you're the intentional narcissist, what is it like? Uh, oh, I'm a... Narcissist, narcissist consciousness. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to a word from our sponsor. Okay. On to our second sponsor, Little Passports. Bring a travel adventure home each and every month with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Pen pal Sam and Sophia will send your child a monthly package in the mail, each highlighting a new global destination like Japan or Brazil or Thailand or Kenya or Spain. Uh, follow the journey on the wall size world map and enjoy learning through letters, souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. My kids lately have really been into Italy. They bought a Leaning Tower of Pisa Lego set for a friend of theirs. And then we talked about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And now they want to go to Italy. And now they, and they also want to go to England to visit a friend of theirs. And they want to take the Eurorail from England to Italy, which I don't even know if that's possible. But they learn about it from Little Passports. 
that might save them until we can actually afford to take them somewhere like that. Little Passports makes the perfect gift for 5- to 10-year-olds and inspires a lifelong interest in travel. Mom and Dad are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code FIGHT40, F-I-G-H-T-40. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash fighting. And again, the promo code is FIGHT40. All right, on to our listener call, which today comes from Sarah from California. Take it away, Sarah. My daughter is a year and a half, and she recently started daycare. I stayed home with her for the first year, so we're relatively new to the whole daycare thing. And her daycare is great, but it's a pretty typical daycare center where a ton of, you know, toddlers running around. It's kind of mayhem. And recently, the past couple of days that I've dropped her off, the daycare has been short-staffed. So there are too few daycare providers to the number of children. You know, every state has their own rules on the ratio of children to providers. My question is, how should I address this or should I address it at all? I don't think my daughter is in any danger. I think things are just fine. But part of me wants to be a stickler for the rules. And I also want to get what I'm paying for. And I also don't want to be the nagging parent who the daycare providers think is really annoying. So I'm kind of trying to ride that fine line between being a good, responsible parent and looking out for my daughter while also not making a big deal of possibly something that maybe isn't a huge deal. Just generally, how do you handle when maybe you have a disagreement with a daycare provider or when you think that they're maybe not doing something they should be? And, um, yeah, thank you so much for the podcast. Bye-bye. So I think you say something. I mean, I think it's totally legitimate for you to want to know what's going on. I don't think you have to say it in any kind of aggressive way. I don't think you even have to be upset about it. Like you said, you don't think your child is in any danger. I don't think it's really necessarily even about being a stickler for the rules. I think it's just like you, you know, you want to know, like, are people out sick and they'll be back soon? Just wondering, like, you know, that my child has gotten used to being around. I'm, you know, are they coming back? Like, I think that's completely legitimate for you to be asking those questions and ask them in a warm and loving way. And, you know, and actually how they answer those questions, I think, matters. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. So the ratio in California, as I'm sure Sarah knows, is... No more than six children to each teacher for toddlers, Sarah's daughter's age. And, like, this doesn't seem like the kind of thing where you ought to, like, just give them slack. I think you see something that is wrong or weird and you ask about it. And as Allison says, the way they answer gives you some sense of what's going on at that daycare center. I feel like, too, very often with daycare, I often felt like I got a little bit overwhelmed by feeling like they are doing me a favor. Or I feel guilty because I'm not with my kids. And so then I feel like, well, I just, well, I can't correct the people who are actually taking care of my kids. But you are paying for this place. And this ratio specifically, like this ratio of six kids to a toddler, is like a basic standard of care that you are paying for. And I think it is totally the right thing to do to politely but firmly find out what is going on and make it clear to them that this is something that you think is worth like taking care of and making sure that they are on board with, you know, and, and, or understanding, like maybe they'll explain what's going on to you and and you'll be OK with it. But you you definitely are allowed to ask and understand. I completely sympathize with it's very hard, whether it's daycare or a nanny or a sitter to like to ask questions that may seem like you doubt them. Essentially, you're scared that they'll take it out on your kids. Right. That's why it's that's why it's scary. Oh, I'm scared they'll yell at me. 
No, I mean, sure. But I think you're scared they'll take it out on your kids. It's not that they're going to mark you as the annoying parent. It's that they're going to mark your kid as the kid of the annoying parent. Uh, but you have to get over that. And if it is the kind of place that would mark your kid as the bad kid, which I don't think any good place is, uh, you don't want to be there. Plus, also, it's worth noting that it does no one any good if, like, a state inspector shows up one morning and they have eight timers right. and one teacher and the place gets shut down. Right. Like, that's screwed. the worst case scenario. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, I think you should listen to the answer. But I actually – I don't think this should be negotiable. Like, I don't think there's any answer they could give that makes you say, okay, it's fine that there's 10 kids with – one toddler. Like, I think that's a problem they have to solve. But I think you can approach it in a nice and kind and non-dickish way. But I think you should approach it and that should be the resolution. Email us and let us know what happens because now I'm yeah. curious. So if you have a question, listeners, that you want us to answer on the air, give us a call at 424-255-7833. That That is 424-255-7833. Rude. Leave a message and we will do our best to answer your question on the air. Okay, our third sponsor this week is Bloom, a really cool monthly subscription that delivers customized boxes of products for babies, kids, and parents right to your door. The products in each box are specific to your child's age and developmental stage, and the best part is that someone else, the Bloom staffers, pick out the products for you. So instead of staring blankly at an aisle of 10,000 baby washes or actually spending your very valuable time on some mom forum trying to figure out which sippy cup to buy, you just let Bloom decide. I got to check out a box geared toward an 18-month-old, and in addition to the utilitarian things like wipes, there was a beautiful book, Opposites, with really bright textured art inside, a colorful wood nine-piece robot puzzle that I definitely think Wally would love, and a box of toddler spoons and forks that I'm actually psyched about because, I don't know, this is my kid fork pet peeve, but they're never sharp enough to actually work as forks, right? (laughs) These forks are both, in praise of these forks, they are both safe for kids and sharp enough to successfully stab food. But not people, not stab people. Not people, right. They're like the right in between, that perfect balance. Each box has five products, and again, it's tailored to your child's actual developmental stage, not just hear stuff for a nine-month-old, take it. Uh, You track your child's milestones in your Bloom account, so you really get what you want and need each month. So check it out at bloom.com slash mom and dad. Bloom is B-L-U-U-M. So bloom.com slash mom, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D. And enter the code MOMDAD for 40% off the first month of all monthly 3, 6, and 12-month plans. Thanks, Bloom. Thanks, Bloom. All right, let's move on to our second segment. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 23% of Americans between 45 and 64 identify themselves as elder care providers. That is, they provide care for someone, for a senior citizen, and they are not paid for it. Now, this encompasses everything from someone who stops in on a relative a couple times a month to people who live full-time with a parent or other relative in decline. In George Hodgman's new memoir, Bettyville, he tells the story of his own entry into the world of elder care. Hodgman left New York to move to his hometown, Paris, Missouri, to care for his 92-year-old mom, Betty, as dementia began to take a toll on her. It's a lovely book that's about that relationship, but it's also a memoir of Hodgman's life, growing up gay in Missouri and keeping secrets even as a book and magazine editor later in New York. And he's joining us in our New York studio to talk about the book and about caring for Betty. Hi, George. Hi there. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So the book is lovely. Uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. One of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was how you went from being a person who I think didn't consider themselves 
you did not consider yourself a caregiver. In fact, you describe yourself early in the book as a care inflictor. Um, how unprepared were you for the notion of, of dealing with and helping your mom on a day-to-day basis when you moved back to Paris? Totally unprepared. I'm an only child, and all my life I dreaded the loss of my parents. And we left, lost my father in 97, and I have just so dreaded my mother's decline. I sort of knew that it wasn't going to be a, just a fast end, that it was going to be a, you know, spread out thing. And she's stubborn enough that she would that she would make that happen for you. She is really stubborn. And it's the only way I'd want her to be. In the book, I say, I, the last thing I'd want is another damned sweet old woman. You know, the reason I can be there and the reason that I've stayed there is that I don't just love her, I really like her. Because... I hope the book shows it. I mean, she's she's funny. And, you know, you watch people go through these things. And she just, I mean, she has gone through this with such effort. She doesn't stop trying. How is both taking care of your mother and, like, relating to her on such a close level as an adult changed your conception of her? And also, do you think it's changed her sense of you? Like, do you think she knows you better now or still just a slice of you um i think that she knows that she knows that i really care about her she knows that i'm a good person i mean that sounds kind of gooey no but, i mean <laughs> um i i think that one thing i wanted her to know because you know, she's had issues with the gay thing. There, You know, my life has been kind of not so understandable to her in many ways. And, you know, she's really been, she was always really happy when I was successful. And um, when I came home, I'd lost my job. My publishing house had been reorganized or, as I say, disorganized. And I was, I, I was suddenly not successful. You know, so she had to take that in. And she didn't like that very much. But I think what she's gradually taken in is that maybe that doesn't quite matter as much. Well, that's one of the things you definitely seem to struggle with in the book a little bit is this. You talk about a world where that you live in where it seems normal to everyone to be available 24-7 for a company that could fire you like at any second. But that everyone looks at you like you're crazy if you fly to take care of someone you love. Did you get a lot of pushback from people in New York about oh, yeah. that decision? Oh, yeah, I did, because it, it was as if what I was doing was very tragic, that I was giving up my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm giving up my life. It was like, I felt like Emily Dickinson there, stranded in Amherst, Massachusetts with Papa. And uh, yesterday on the radio, this woman basically said, well, do you ever have sex? <laughs> And I, w- I said, well, not with my mother. Um, <laughs> and um, and it, there is this notion here to sort of take this dark view. Because in New York, you know, nobody wants to be a martyr. Right. You don't want to be a martyr. You're, you know, a victim. You know, I didn't make a decision to go there and stay. I went there and one thing after another happened. Then last March, she got cancer. And we had to go to radiation. It's 50 miles away. There was nobody else. And so New York has come to understand. Because I think that what they sense in a 
in a way, my friends, is that I have found some kind of contentment. And I actually have. I wouldn't say that it's a situation that is without incredible stress and sadness. But it is not a bad thing to be drawn into the human things of life. George, do you wish you had a sibling to share this with, both like the emotional baggage and the logistics? This would have been a really good time for a Brady Bunch situation. <laughs> yeah. It would. But I have a cousin, and I have two cousins, and they're great, and they try to help. But the thing about it is, you know, I talk to my friends who have brothers and sisters, and it does seem like usually it's one, it's always one person who winds up kind of taking it. And, you know, how do I know that my life is just, as I say, I'm not a martyr, I'm just available. And and it's okay. All right, the book is Bettyville by George Hodgman. It is really, really great. Please check it out. And George, thank you so much for coming in. You all are so fun. I want to be here every day. <laughs> Thanks, George. <laughs> Take care. All right, moving on to recommendations. Allison, what do you got? First, I need to rescind my recommendation from our last episode. Oh, no. <laughs> I told you guys to watch The Slap. Uh, thank you. Which I said was so bad it's good. But then I watched the episode told from Uma Thurman's perspective, and it was not just so bad, but so, 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 so bad that it was no longer good at all. And I stopped recording the show and vowed never to waste my time on it again. So... <laughs> Sorry about that. One recommendation this week is to not listen to my recommendations. But the other one is you should read from last week's New York Times magazine, Elizabeth Wheels. Is it Elizabeth Wheel or Elizabeth Weil? I don't know, but that piece is really good. Yeah, Elizabeth Weil Wheel's profile of 18-year-old American middle distance runner Mary Kane. Uh, it's called Mary Kane is Growing Up Fast. And it is a fascinating portrait of a young runner, of running in general, like with a lot of interesting details about what it takes in training and the way the body works and being a girl in particular, a girl runner, and related to our earlier conversation about, you know, narcissism and specialness. It's amazing to read about a young person who actually is special. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but seems legitimately like super nice and not an asshole at all. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Also, as a peer writing exercise, that is a great piece to read just for the sheer number of different ways that it can describe a human being's legs. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a really great really piece. Uh, that's a great recommendation. Um, I bet you won't even take it back next time when you discover upon a second read that it's terrible. Uh, I, really a jerk. I am recommending a uh, comic series, a really great ongoing comic series on the web for kids ages 7 to 12. It is called The Creepy Case Files of Margot Malou. It is by a cartoonist named Drew Wang. Wang? We just cannot pronounce the names of <laughs> Could our people. Could you guys people. Be, stop with your vowels? W-E-I-N-G. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I do not know how to pronounce his last name. It is uh, The comic is about a grumpy kid named Charles who moves to a new city, only to find that his new city is haunted by ogres and trolls and ghosts and vampires. But luckily, he meets a monster mediator named Margot Malou. 
And the two of them go on adventures, but they do not fight the monsters. This is not Ghostbusters. Instead, they are figuring out ways for humans and monsters to happily coexist. And I think that sounds a little sappy when I say it out loud, but it's actually not sappy at all. It is very funny. And it's also really well drawn um, by this guy, Drew Wang, who is one of my favorite cartoonists. He wrote this really, really great um, nautical adventure book called Set to Sea recently that I loved. Anyway, so chapter one and two are done and online. Chapter three is about to begin. And you can point your kid toward it at his website, which is www.drewwying.com. It is D-R-E-W-W-E-I-N-G.com, or you can just like Google Creepy Case Files or Margot Malou or look at our show page where we will post it. Awesome. All right. That's our show. Please email us at slate.com to suggest topics or recommend books or guests or or anything or things that uh, Allison should stop recommending. Uh, and if you've got a question, please give us a call at any hour and leave a message on our voicemail at 424-255-7833. That number again, 424-255-RUDE, like Uma Thurman in the slap. Please subscribe on iTunes. You just search for Mom and Dad are Fighting and leave a comment or a rating there that helps people find the show. Mom and Dad are Fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts on iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Eddie Brummelman and George Hodgman. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, our managing producer, Joel Meyer, and our executive producer, Andy Bowers. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.